All right, grab a Bible or grab an iPad or grab a phone. We're going to be in Romans 8 to start. Just We're going to be all over the place, but Romans 8, five, page 550 in your pew Bibles will be there in just a moment. So we started a, a short series last week on confronting our culture. We talked a little bit about an interesting topic, grace versus karma. I love all the songs today were about, well, not all of them, but quite a few of them were about grace. I don't know about you guys, I love that last song. Um, it's full, it's full, and it has the gospel in it. So we talked about the principles uh, of karma, cause and effect, the law of sin and death, and the law of the spirit of life. And we read out of Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, where it said this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life hath set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Lorraine stopped me after church last week. She had a great exercise, um, and, and maybe we can even try it from time to time today. Do you remember your sentence? Oh, Lorraine. I, I, might, I might have to look it up in my own phone then. She said, what is your one sentence? Uh, did you send it in a text or an email? Do you remember? Text. Uh, I, I can't seem to find it. Anyway, she said, Take today's message and boil it down into one sentence. And I think that's actually a pretty good idea. Because every time we get together, we talk, we study the Bible, we talk about something from Scripture, we ought to be able to explain to somebody else what it is. And I think by being able to, to boil it down, here we go. It's not under your name, it was under Dick's. So here, here's her boil down. Karma is for the one who does not believe that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for them. And that's really what we discovered, is that because God sent Christ to take our sin to the cross, to the grave, and, and to be raised again, that the law of sin and death doesn't apply now to those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. We will still die a physical death, but we will have an eternal life with Christ. And it's interesting that these two messages, last week's and this week's, connect. The law of sin and death essentially said this, all have sinned. God has no tolerance for sin, and he has a wrath towards sin that must be satisfied. The wages of sin is death. We learn that's both spiritual and physical. Death here rever refers to an ultimate physical death because our days are numbered, and an eventual spiritual death that's an eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23 spells that out very clearly. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we learn from studying this that we're released from worrying about karma. We're released from worrying about if my actions have an impact on my future. And one of the things that's interesting, because we, we left this untouched, um, is that karma has a dark side. <laughs> because God has great mercy and immense grace, we can know him as Lord and Savior and find release from these things. But there's this dark side to karma that says, and we talked about this briefly last week, that your past 
and your present actions dictate your future, that there are past lives and that this present life will lead into future lives on a path to perfection that somehow in living uh, life after life, we will we'll somehow attain glory, will somehow attain perfection. As a religious concept, that's basically what it says. This concept we know, and it has a name, we call it reincarnation. That if you didn't do well enough in this life, you'll get another life in order to work it out. And depending on how good or bad you were in this life depends on how good or bad you start out in the next. This has not got... Um, its roots in just where you would think, the, the Buddhism and Taoism and Hinduism, but it also has roots in uh, Native, Native American religions, some Native religions around the world. Norse mythology. I found out, I did, uh, I did um, Ancestry.com. I didn't find out I was Irish, like Daniel did, but... Um, Lydia and mine almost uh, almost 100% is just like Europe. <laughs> um, but I have a little bit of Norway, and I read about that, and that's due to incursions by the Vikings. So apparently I have a little Viking. Sean the Great, right? <laughs> a little Viking. But Norse mythology, Viking mythology, and some of those kinds of, of, of uh, religious perspectives have this idea. Uh, the Middle Ages carry this idea, 19th and 20th century philosophy and thought, New Age religion. You, you have this permeating throughout our culture, and, and it permeates throughout people's language, and we hear people say things like, uh, and somebody said this the other day. It, it was a believer that said it, and I was like, I can't believe you just said it. He said, well, he, he was talking about being really busy and doing a lot of work, and he said, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead, and I thought, I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true. You'll hear people say, well, I'll work that out in my next life. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody, you ever heard people say that? People say, I hear that all the time. I've heard that in the last couple of weeks. Maybe it's like because it's on my mind, I'm thinking about it, and I'm working on it, you hear it, but, but it, it, it's just it's been sticking out to me. I watched um, this series that I'm watching, and I watched it last night. Lydia was gone with Becca doing some stuff, and I watched an episode, and they were talking about karma in it, and I was like, Okay, this is like right out in the forefront. It's just so it's like everywhere. But I want us to take a look and see what the Bible says about this. Because it's kind of the prevailing thought, in, w at least one of the prevailing thoughts in our culture. There's several. When you die, there's nothing. You fall asleep, like the guy who said, I'll sleep when I'm dead. That's a pretty fatalistic view, right? That when I die, everything will be destroyed and there's nothing. Um, you have the Christian view, which we're going to talk about. We're going to unpack that from Scripture. You have this view that um, if I don't get it worked out in this life, I'll work it out in a next. So it kind of leaves us with two questions. The first is in, uh, well, the first we're going to look at in Hebrews to, to answer. If you'll look over at Hebrews 9. But these two questions sound like this. How many times does a person have to die? That's the first question. How many times does a person, a spirit, a soul have to die? And the second question is, what happens when I die? Anybody here ever wondered about any of those questions? All right, so we're going to talk about that today. Hebrews 9, it's page 584 in your pew Bibles. We're going to read verses 27 and 28. The answer to the first question, how many times does a person have to die, is going to be answered really, really quickly. 
It says, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once. There it is, answered. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly await him. Go back to the beginning of that verse there real quick, Jordan. It says very clearly, and just as it is appointed for man to die once. Scripture's pretty clear. It, it doesn't pull any punches here. We will die one time. Death is coming. It's the ultimate equalizer. I know, what a downer. We're like a church. We're on Sunday. We're all happy. We want to hear from the Lord, and we're getting a message about death. We're all going to die. It's true. Death is coming. Each of us will reach a point in our lives where the brain will quit, the organs will quit, the blood will stop pumping, and we'll die. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. It's no wonder that the second question uh, plays so prominently in our minds. It may not be constant. Some of us may have thoughts every day. I don't know. I don't, I don't think about it real often because I know where, where I'm going. I know what's going to happen. But we may have that question. What's going to happen when I die? What is it going to look like? What is it going to be like? There are two eternal destinations, and we're going to read out of Luke, page 511 in your pew Bibles. Luke 16, this is one of our, our larger passages, so if you'll turn to this to read along with me. And we're going to get an answer to this, starting in verse 19, about what happens and what are outcomes when you die. I think this scripture best illustrates from anything in scripture what happens. So let's take a look, Luke 19, I'm sorry, Luke 16, starting in verse 19 says this, there was a rich man who was clothed in, clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried to angels by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember, you in your lifetime received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's conform he, he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and between you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So there's two destinations. Destination one, eternal life separated from God in a place called hell, a place of torment, a place of anguish. The Bible tells us a couple things about this place, but we do know it's an eternal and real destination. Destination two, eternal life with God in a place called heaven, a completely different place than hell. Now, there's commonalities between these two men. They share some commonalities in, they, in their story. When they died, they were dead. I know that sounds like a funny point, but it's a point worth repeating. When they died, they were dead. They didn't come back. You know, we, we get all kinds of weird stories and weird things that we hear in, in the world and in pop culture 
uh, and in religious culture. But when they died, they were dead. We also know that the dead were buried. It's an important point. The dead were separated from their bodies because the body stayed in the grave and they went to somewhere else. We know there's a chasm fixed between two places, between heaven and hell, and we know the chasm cannot be crossed from one side to the other for any reason. Does that sound like it's in paradox with any teachings you might have grown up under? Yeah. Anybody ever grow up hearing about the theology of purgatory? That there's an in-between place. We're not talking about that today. <laughs> but this puts that, that philosophy on its ear, doesn't it? If there is no way to cross from one to the other, and there's only two places, purgatory by, by the very definition must be false, must be a false doctrine. All right, now their stories diverge. The rich man was carried to one place, and Lazarus was carried to another. Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's side. John 14, 1 through 4 says this, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So we see that Jesus has promised the disciples and his followers and those who are in Christ and those who are Christ followers that he goes ahead to prepare us a place. We see this place in heaven where Lazarus is carried to the side of Abraham by the angels. Now, it's interesting that the picture of, of hell in this passage called Hades that we refer to, um, one of the interesting things that really sticks out to me is uh, the, the rich man's request was for something to cool his tongue, a little bit of water. Isn't that interesting? What is one of the things Jesus says in his I am statements? I am the living water. So isn't that interesting? What, what, what I want you to see here is that the differences between heaven and hell are that in heaven there's God and in hell there's not. So everything that is God in heaven is not in hell. So there's no bread of life. There's no light. If God is light and God is love and God is good and Jesus says, I am the bread of life and I am the living water, those things are by, by definition absent from the other side of the chasm. Things that don't happen, what we, can, what we can extrapolate from this passage, things that don't happen when a body that's in the grave is separated from the soul or spirit or whatever is carried to heaven or hell. <laughs> second chances. We don't see any record here of second chances. In fact, doesn't Abraham put the idea of second chances just out? Basically, there's no second chance. You're not going to get any water. You're not going to get anybody from this side bringing anything to you. Um, there's, there's no second chance. Good things have passed away. He was reminded you had good things when you were alive on earth. Now you don't have good things because you didn't know the Father. You didn't know the, the Lord as Savior. There are no further warnings to be issued to the living on behalf of the dead. Now, this is like another cultural movies religion superstition i mean we could unpack this for we, we could just talk about this right 
But I think it's clear from this passage to say there is no reaching out from the other side. If you're dead, you're dead. You're gone. Abraham said, you're not going to get to go back and tell your family (laughs) how bad you messed up and that they should straighten up. It's interesting but because the teaching in our culture is, is opposite of this, isn't it? We, 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 so many different stories of second chances. There, there are no second chances. There's, there's no second chances. And all the warnings that will be issued have already been issued. It's called the Bible. We've been given God's word. In fact, that was Abraham's answer, right? He's like, well, I'm not going to send Lazarus back from the dead to talk to your family because they have Moses and the prophets. That wasn't him saying they literally have these guys because Moses and the prophets had already passed at this point. He was referring to the books. He was literally saying, I'm not sending somebody back from the dead because they already have the word of God. And in the word of God, you can find sufficient what you need to know for life and for death, (laughs) for understanding of who God is and how to know them. So there's no second chances to make things right with God. There's no second life, third life, fourth life. It's non-existence. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 again says, just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes in judgment. Now, I don't know about you, that's probably a scary proposition. I mean, we don't like, who really likes to talk about death? I turned 51 last week and I'm like, you know, you, you always wonder every time you have a birthday when you start getting older, you're like, well, I wonder how much longer I have. I don't know. You, you, you ask these questions. The thing I want to focus on for a few minutes, though, is to look at what Paul says about the future of the believer and what happens when you die. Because we're all going to grapple with this, and if we're going to be honest with ourselves, everybody out there is too. And the reason is there's so many diverging ideas and thoughts and philosophies and religions is because people are trying to make sense of it. The world says when you die, by and large, you'll have a second chance even in some Christian circles, right? Because if you die, you can go to purgatory, people can light a candle and pray for you, and then maybe, you know, if you're good or somebody else is good on your behalf or they pay enough money to have your name read in the church, maybe you'll get out. <laughs> I know, right? It's, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense, Right? I mean, if you could pay your way out or pray your way out, then what would be the point of any of this? 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10 says this. This is Paul. He says, So we are always of good courage while we know that we are at home in the body. We're away from the Lord. This is some deep theology here. Pay attention to this. For in the body we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home from the Lord. I mean, if we're going to be honest, that's what Paul is saying. I would rather be dead in this body and alive with Christ. Then he says this, so whether we are at home or away, whether that's in the body or away from the body, we make it our aim to please Him. What's our goal in life? Pleasing God, first and foremost. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's no second chance. If we're, there, there's only two states, according to Paul. In the body, away from the Lord. 
away from the body with the Lord. There's only two spots. There's only two places. You're either alive and away, or you're dead and you're with. So there's no, in over and over again, we see this communicated in Scripture. For the believer, for the Christ follower, to be in our body means we're away from the Lord in heaven. We understand that our body is a temple of the Lord, and if we have received Christ as Lord and Savior, He resides in us as a temple, but we are away from the presence of God because we know that He resides in heaven. Paul says if we're living in this physical body, we're away from the physical presence of the Lord. If we go to the Lord in heaven, we don't come back again. If you die, your body's dead. But if you're in Christ, your spirit is alive with Christ. Now, a little quick word. He says um, that we'll be judged. That's not a judgment of salvation. You're not going to get up there and he's going he's gonna, to like weigh the scales. Were you good enough? Were you bad enough? Uh, if you're not in Christ, if you're not a Christ follower, if you haven't placed your faith in Christ and he hasn't saved you based on the work that Christ did on the cross, then when you get to heaven, it's too late. It's too late. That has to be done beforehand. I don't want you to be confused because we live in a very confusing world. And there's a lot of conflicting ideas. There's a lot of confusing beliefs and teachings. And there's no shortage of confusion and speculation over heaven and the resurrection of the saints. And just a note on saints. That'd be a great message sometime because a lot of us grew up Catholic and we have this weird idea of what a saint is. Do you know what a saint is? Yeah, this room is full of them right now. Saints are Christ followers. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. I don't, and I don't know, it's funny. We didn't, we didn't do it much. I know Lydia's she's holding her head because she knows what I'm about to say. We, we didn't have very many Catholic churches in Montana, so we didn't see them very often. But here we drive around. They're all over the place. And, and no disrespect, but they have the strangest names. And we'll drive by, and it'll be like St. Penelope. And I'm like, I've never heard of that saint. I don't know if that's a real person or not. St. Gertrude or St. I mean, some really strange names. And I'm like, I don't know who that saint is. I've never heard of that saint. They may or may not be a saint. I don't know, according to what Scripture said a saint is. But we have saints in this room today. We've got St. We've got Ellen. Oh, that sounds good. St. Donna. St. Lorene. You notice I picked all women. How about St. Kevin? St. Sam. I like that one. It's better than Son of Sam. It's Saint Sam. <laughs> uh, but we're saints. So let's read this scripture out of Matthew because I don't want us to be confused about the resurrection of the saints. This is a passage out of Matthew 22. It's 43 in your Bibles. About a group of religious men who should not have been confused but were the Sadducees, we're going to read Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. Uh, the Sadducees are going to ask Jesus about the resurrection, and it says, The same day Sadducees came to him, that's Christ, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies, having no children, his brother must marry his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So the two, the second, and the third, down to the seventh, all of them the, um, married, <laughs> and after them, the woman died. None of them had children, right? Okay, so we're reading here, it says, In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. 
Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they are neither, there is neither married nor are they given in marriage, but they are like angels in heaven. They're not angels in heaven. That's another message altogether. They're like angels in heaven. That's a, well, that's a big one, isn't it? When you die, you go to be an angel in heaven. That's not, we'll leave that for another day. This has a lot of good stuff, a lot of things we can branch out on, right? They're like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, Jesus continues, Have you not read what was said to you about God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teachings. See, these guys should have known. They should have had, they should have had an understanding. Christ was there. They had the presence of Christ. They had the teaching of Christ. But they made up this weird story about seven guys who all married the same woman but had no children, so they just kept marrying her right on down the line because I guess it was a cultural thing. And then they asked the question, well, who will she be married to in heaven? And Jesus is like, are you guys kidding me? Marriage isn't, heaven's not about marriage. That makes me a little sad, though. I mean, when I read that, I'm like, well, I kind of like Lydia. I'd like to be with Lydia in heaven, but I guess we won't be married in heaven. That's what Scripture says. doesn't mean we won't be together in heaven. But our focus in heaven is not going to be on Sean and Lydia anymore. It's going to be on the throne and on the Lord, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as we praise Him. And that'll be enough. And when I think about being dead sometimes and I think about heaven, do you ever wonder if that'll be enough? I wonder if that'll be enough. And you kind of like, we want to hold on to life. Paul, man, he was like, when when he said, you know, a couple things Paul said. One of the things he said that really strikes me is he said, imitate me while I imitate Christ. That's bold. We should all be able to say that. Would you say that about yourself? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, that's a hard one. Well, one of the things Paul says is, I long to be with Christ, away from the body in heaven with Christ. Can you say that's true for you? Do you long to be in heaven with Christ, or do you long to just stay here? (laughs) So maybe the Lord has to work a little bit on our attitude on that one. Because maybe we're not looking at God as if he were enough. Is he really enough for us? This is a, there's real beauty here, and it is found in the heart of the gospel in this passage because the real error in the belief in reincarnation is that it completely ignores the power of God. It completely ignores the power of Jesus Christ, and it, it completely ignores his gospel. We can't buy his salvation. We can't earn it. We can't save it. We can't make it happen. We can't lose it if we have it. I mean, he offers it to us freely, Not because of something I did or because of something you did, but because of what Christ has already done. So if you extrapolate that idea, the fallacy becomes clear that how could being reborn into a new body make you right? How how could repeated tries at becoming good ever make you good enough to reach heaven if it's not based on what you can do? I mean, Scripture is really clear. It's not about works. It's not about what we can do. It's all about Christ. The concept that we're forced to work out our salvation, if you will, by suffering through repetition of lives until we get it right is based on a, on a fallacy. It's actually the anti-gospel. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ says it all relies upon God. It all relies upon the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The anti-gospel says it relies on you. You work it out. You be good. And if it doesn't work out in this life, you'll get another one and try to work it out again. And if that doesn't work, you get another one and try to work it out again. The fallacy is that it's just more of the same, like every other world religion that points to works in order to get it right. You become the center of your salvation. Where Jesus says, I'm the center of your salvation. And it's all about me. If we try hard enough, if we, if we work hard enough, if we do everything just right, maybe the cosmic impersonal forces of justice, karma, and cause and effect will allow us into nirvana. Doesn't that sound like a real stretch? I mean, when you think about it. It's easier to believe in the gospel. Because what that stuff is, is anti-gospel. It's exactly the opposite. Where the gospel says, Jesus Christ took my sin to the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And because of that sacrifice, now I can be made right between God and the Father. Because the wrath of God's position on sin is on me and my sin. I can't know God, but because Jesus I love that verse. I gotta, you know, we, we sang that song and I picked it out on purpose. I'm gonna go back to it. I know we weren't gonna sing it again, but I might want to. I think actually I do. <laughs> I love this song. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He rescued me from danger, interposed his precious blood. He exchanged his place for me and for you. That's the gospel. John 11, 523 in your pew Bibles. John 11. Seventeen to twenty-seven. Uh, yeah. It says this, now when uh, Jesus came, he found... Well, I'm going to give you a little background real quick. Um, Lazarus. Mary and Martha, Lazarus, sister's brother, um, Lazarus had become sick. A lot of us know the story. He'd become sick. He became ill. They sent word to Jesus, come, Lazarus is sick. Jesus delayed. He waited, and then word came to Jesus that Lazarus had died. So he made preparations with his disciples to go to see Mary and Martha and go to the funeral or whatever you would have called it for Lazarus. They actually were, were late because by the time they got there, he had already been buried. We're going to pick up in verse 17. It says, now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So he was, he was pretty late. We'll find out in a minute. He did it on purpose. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She already knew that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This story, I believe Jesus allowed all of this to transpire and play out. It's interesting, I would bring up a story where somebody did come back from being dead. <laughs> when we've, ex- when we've, pretty well, like, we've pretty well hammered home the point that that doesn't happen, save from an influence of Christ. I think Jesus did this because people struggled with what resurrection was. They struggled to understand it. And so he wanted them to have a picture. And so when he went and he called Lazarus out of the tomb, that was a picture for the people and for us today that we would never forget proof that Jesus has the power over death in order to call people back to life. Now, is he going to call us up from the grave? No. That doesn't happen. We don't see that as normative. We don't see that happening. But what we do see as normative is that Jesus can call us up from the grave into heaven, in the resurrection, that when we die, if we believe in Christ, yet shall we live. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. I love it. Another one of his I am statements. The transformative power of the gospel of Christ is not about money. It's about Christ. It's not about perceived good. It's not about your ability to to repeat goodness and do good things. It's not about your sin. It's about Christ. It's not about your imperfection. It's about Christ. It's not about your attempts at doing the right things. It's about Christ. It's not about a, a hope in a possible reincarnation. It's about an assurance that there's a resurrection in Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus says it's not about you. It's about me. It's not about what you can do, but it's about what I have already done. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. We're going to do communion in a minute. It's a celebration of, of the gospel it's a celebration of, of what Christ did. It, you know, he, he gathered the, the 12 on that last night, and he said, go prepare a place for a meal, and we're going to share a meal together. And when they sat, he shared with them about what was going to happen. They didn't understand it, and they bristled against it, and they proposed alternate ideas. And Jesus even told Peter, get back, Satan. You know, you don't have the things of God in your mind in this. And I'm going to wash your feet. No, don't wash my feet. Well, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. Okay, well, they wash my head and my hands too. It was like impulsive. They had this meal together and they had this time together and they grappled mentally trying to understand what Christ was going to do. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit that the Gospels are written down in the Bible. So we can understand now what happened. He said, when you do this meal, when you do it, remember me. So this is a way, as a body of Christ, for us to remember Christ. It's a way for us to celebrate Christ. It's a way for us to fellowship with one another. I love that Acts 2 passage. We read it, I don't know, three or four months ago. I talked about three or four or five different things the church did consistently. One of them was this. 
They shared a meal together. They broke bread. They shared communion. And so as we do this today, this is open for anyone who's in Christ. And I told you what it means to be in Christ. If you know, you can remember, you may, it could even be today, a time where you came before God and said, it's not about me and what I can do anymore, God. I, I've tried and I can't do it. Forgive me for my sin. My sin has separated me from you, God. If you can remember a time you've done that and you've asked him to save you, and he saved you, this is a meal that's open for you. It's a meal of fellowship. It's a meal of remembrance. A couple things you should think about. First and foremost, um, Scripture says you need to be prepared. So take a moment. We're going to, Billy, Billy's here. We're going to be quiet for a moment. <laughs> Actually, I want to sing that song in a minute, if you don't mind. I want to do that. I want to do that. Maybe we'll do that at the very end. I love that song. Now take a minute to prepare. Take a minute to go before the Lord, to ask Him to search you, see if there's any wicked way in you, see if there's any wandering. Ask Him to bind your wandering heart to Him. Ask Him to tune your heart. Ask Him to transform your heart. If there's a problem between you and another person, and that person's here, you could even go grab them and say, hey, I want to talk. Will you forgive me? If they're not here, you know, like I told you before, we've lived in Poland for eight years. When they did communion, they took it really seriously. There were people all the time that they didn't do communion because something was wrong. We're not watching you when you come down to do communion. We're not watching to see who did and who didn't. We're not going to come later and say, well, I noticed you didn't take communion. What's wrong? That's between you and the Father. So if for some reason you feel like you need to exclude yourself from communion today, do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Spend that time in prayer. Spend that time asking the Lord what it is you need to get right. So I'm going to take just a moment of silence for you to commune with the Lord, to pray, to, to talk with Him and to hear from Him. And then we'll start a song and communion will be open and you can come down and take it uh, individually or as families.